you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 8, as we are continuing our study in the book of Acts today, and just seeing how the good news about Jesus was spreading like wildfire in the days of the early church, and even martyrdom and persecution were not able to stop that fire from spreading. Uh, When persecution ramped up and forced a lot of the early Christians to leave Jerusalem where the church had been born. They were scattered everywhere, but everywhere they went, uh, they were telling people about Jesus. Uh, Last week, Aaron did a wonderful job teaching us about a man named Philip who was scattered to the region of Samaria. And God began to work miraculously through Philip and Uh, He shared about Jesus. People were saved and baptized, and a revival uh, began there in Samaria. And there was great joy in the city because of all that God was doing. But today, we're going to read about one man in Samaria who got saved, or at least uh, said he did, but who wasn't what he seemed. Now let's read this story as we get started. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would indeed fill this place, flood this atmosphere. Father, would you fill our hearts and speak to us through your holy word. Father, would you help us to leave this place with our hearts right before you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This week, one of the phrases that I heard the most around uh, my house was, uh, Daddy, let me show you a trick. 
Because for some reason, my boys this week were all about um, doing these little magic tricks with, with coins. And, and they really hadn't been into that before. I'm not really sure where that came from. But, you know, it is kind of the end of the summer. And it feels like our kids have been on summer break for like five and a half years now. And so they're, they're, they're running out of things to do. And so anyway, they had all these different tricks. And, you know, there's coins disappearing in their sleeves and being covered by napkins and things like that. And, and of course, it was interesting for me as I've been studying this Bible story this week, which is about a magician. Now, of course, Simon was a different kind of magician. He wasn't a make a coin disappear kind of magician or a pull a rabbit out of a hat kind of magician. He was uh, more like a black magic, demonically inspired and empowered sorcerer kind of magician. But nonetheless, this is a crazy story. Because in this story, it looks like, at least for a little bit, like this uh, black magic practicing sorcerer gets saved and joins the church. But then you find out that he views the Holy Spirit as just another magic trick that he hasn't yet learned how to do. It becomes clear that his faith is phony, that his faith is counterfeit, or to borrow a term from magic, that it's an illusion. We shouldn't be surprised to find at least one phony mixed in with the miracles of salvation that God was doing in the city of Samaria. Here's how one person put it. Whenever and wherever God is at work among people, there are not only genuine responses, but also counterfeit ones. While some people may point to Ananias and Sapphira, this story of Simon in Acts chapter 8 is what I consider to be the first concrete example of a counterfeit Christian or a spiritual pretender in the early church who claimed to be a Christian but wasn't. As we study this story of Simon today, I want to be clear, we're not studying it so that we can uh, try to hone our skills on spotting whether someone else is a counterfeit or not, because in the end, that's not really our job. But we're studying this passage today so that we can look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and ask ourselves whether we are a counterfeit or not. And even if today you know that you are truly saved, we need to ask ourselves whether we might not be pretending in some area of our lives we need to ask ourselves whether our, high, our hearts are right before God. Here's the first characteristic of a spiritual pretender that I see in Simon's story. Spiritual pretenders love and live for the praise of man. They love and live for the praise of man. Verses 9 through 11 gives us the background on this man, Simon. How he was viewed by all the people in Samaria as a kind of celebrity before the gospel message about Jesus came to town. Verse 9 tells us that Simon astonished or amazed them uh, with his sorceries. The old King James Version says that he bewitched them. I, I love that word, as though he were under their spell. Because in a sense, they were. They were astounded by him. He was able to do these incantations and magical spells. Verse 10 says that all of them, from the least of them to the greatest, that means everybody in town uh, paid attention to what Simon was doing. If he lived in our day, he would have the most 
followers on Twitter. His YouTube channel would be exploding. He would be having corporate sponsorships, playing shows at Caesar's palace. He, he was a star in Samaria. In fact, the people even said, they went so far as to say, this man is the great power of God. And they came a little bit short of saying that he was actually God, but they were saying that out of all the powers of God, that he was the greatest. What, what a thing to say. And verse 11 says that this praise and admiration and really borderline worship of Philip had been going on in Samaria for a long, long time. And I can imagine that he loved it. That he loved it when people called him the great power of God. He loved it when he walked out his door and down the street, the way people looked at him, the way they were amazed and astonished by him. Life had been good for Simon in Samaria for a long time until Philip came into town with a message about someone even greater. You know, the enemy uses a lot of things to try to keep us in his clutches and away from the God who wants to save us. And one of the things that he uses is our own natural, human, fleshly love of the praise of other people. Now, we are all born with that. And of course, we all need encouragement. We all need to be built up by others. But you can get to a point where what you are living for and what you can't live without is the praise of others. Or what we care about, every decision is driven by how this will play in the court of public opinion. We want to be liked. And we want to be adored. And we want to be praised. And we want people to look at us and say about us what they said about Simon. You are the great one. There's a lot of problems with thinking that way, living for the praise of men. But one of them is that when we think that way... When we think the way that Simon thought about himself, like we are little demigods who should be praised and adored by everyone, it's really hard at that point to see ourselves the way that God sees us apart from Christ. To see ourselves as lost sinners who desperately need to turn to the Savior for forgiveness. And we have to be humbled enough to admit that we are lost before we will turn to Christ and be saved. And Simon's pride is part of what kept him from really being saved, even though people all around him were turning to the Lord with genuine faith. I think one of the things that should happen in our hearts when we truly come to Christ and start to grow in our knowledge of him is that we come to a place where we truly would rather have the praise of God on our life than the praise of men. And we get to a place where truly our deepest heart's desire is not that other people would praise us, but that other people would praise our God. Here's another way to say that. Christians are not living anymore for people to say to us, you are the great one, because we know who the real great one is, and it's not us. We're living or should be living for people to see how great our God is. Is. And so, friend, what about you right now, if you're honest? Are you living for others to praise you or so that others would praise your God? Here's the second characteristic of a spiritual pretender. Spiritual pretenders may be superficially drawn to spiritual things and may appear for a little while to be genuinely saved. 
Now, we already talked about what a celebrity Simon was in Samaria, but that was before Philip came to town. And when Philip came to town and started talking about Jesus and working all these miraculous signs, people started getting saved, started being baptized. A movement was starting and uh, building. And, and of course, none of that was lost on Philip. As one person put it, he saw that his star was fading, that his influence and crowd was shrinking. And he probably thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So after telling us about all the other people who got saved in Samaria, look at what it says in verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, commentators are divided about whether Simon was really saved or not. And to be fair, if you just read verse 13 and ended there, it seems like he was. It says he believed. Tells us that he was baptized. Makes it sound like he was a new Christian, just like all the other new Christians that were in Samaria. And I, and I think Luke wrote it that way because that's how it seemed to all of them at the time as well. They thought the same thing. They, they thought, wow, I mean, even Simon the magician has gotten saved. This is amazing. And I'm not saying that Simon was necessarily purposely misleading people. His belief in Jesus may have been sincere as far as it goes. But it becomes clear that his belief didn't go far enough. It didn't go deep enough. That it was less than genuine saving faith. That becomes clear in just a minute. When he tries to purchase the Holy Spirit for a price. It becomes clear in what Peter says to him. Very strong words in verses 20 to 23 that we'll look at in a minute. You know, Simon reminds me of the people that Jesus encountered early on in his ministry. Look at this from John chapter 2. It says, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Note that word believed. Many believed in his name and they saw the signs which he did. So they saw signs, they believed in Jesus. To our ears, that sounds like these people got saved. And yet look at the next verse, verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Simon was just like these folks. They, they, they saw signs and wonders and they believed in a sense, but not really. And Jesus saw through it because Jesus knows our hearts. As Peter would see through Simon's deception in just a moment. You know, I also think about the parable of the seed and the sower that Jesus taught us in Matthew 13. You remember in that parable, Jesus says the word of God is like seed that is scattered on four different types of of ground, types of soil. And it's only the fourth type of soil that Jesus calls the good soil, that which ends up producing a, a harvest and bears fruit. The other three types of ground are, are called not good soil by Jesus, and yet some of them, at least for a little bit, seem like they're good soil. Remember what Jesus taught about the rocky or stony ground. Jesus says that those who have a heart that's like that stony ground, he, he says they receive the word immediately with joy. And yet, they don't have roots, roots that go down very far. And in the end, they fall away. Now, the rest of the Word of God makes it clear to us that if someone falls away from Christ, that does not mean that they lost their salvation, because real salvation is not a thing that can be lost. But they fall away from Christ because, in truth, they never actually had Christ, even though it seemed like, for a time, 
that they did. I remember a man uh, several years ago who came to see me because his marriage was on the rocks and his wife was about to leave him. After talking with him for a while, it became clear that this man was not a believer. And so I shared about Jesus with him. And then I told him that his decision to turn to Christ needed to be made regardless of whether his wife left him or not. Because this wasn't about that. This was about his heart before God and his need for a Savior. And he said he understood that. And he prayed with me to receive Christ. And tears were flowing down his face. And I was excited for him. He began to come to church. He began to allow me to disciple him. Talked about baptism. And a little time after that, his wife left him anyway. Then he started saying that he wanted to put off being baptized. And he no longer wanted to meet for discipleship. And eventually he stopped coming to church. And as far as I know, right now he isn't walking with the Lord. No, only the Lord knows his heart for sure, but from all appearances it would seem that his heart was rocky soil. That it was like Simon in this story, that he wasn't really say, but only superficially and temporarily drawn to spiritual things in the hope that perhaps trying God out might save him from a pickle that he found himself in. That's Simon. The superficiality of Simon's faith became clear when he tries to buy the Holy Spirit, or more precisely, he tries to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit to others. Verse 14 through 17 really sets the stage that. We won't read those verses again, but what happened was the apostles in Jerusalem heard about this revival that was going on in Samaria. And so they decided to send two of their best, Peter and John, to go and check it out and make sure that it was legit. And so Peter and John get there and they can tell right away that it is legit. The word of God is being preached. People are being genuinely saved and are turning to Christ and being baptized. They also realize, though, that the gift of the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to these new Christians, that they were just like they were when they were praying in that upper room before chapter 2 of Acts happened, before the day of Pentecost came. And so they prayed for them, laid their hands on them, that God would give them the Holy Spirit, and he did. That's why many people call this passage the Samaritan Pentecost. Just like in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first given to those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, here is a Samaritan Pentecost when now these Samaritans who were always looked upon as, as half-breeds, who were something less than the Jewish people, had also been saved, had also received the Holy Spirit. Now some people have tried to argue based on this story that this is how it always works even still today. That the Christian life is, is a kind of two-step or two-stage initiation process where first you get saved like they did, and then sometime later, possibly, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as a kind of second payment or second blessing after your salvation. Now, when you study the whole of Scripture, it becomes very clear that this is not the normal pattern. But the normal pattern is that when a person is saved, that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit immediately at that time. In fact, in Romans 8, 9, it says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to Christ. And so what's happening here? Why did they not receive the Spirit immediately when they were saved? I think this is a unique time in the history of the church when the gospel is first spreading beyond the bounds of Judaism. 
And it's first making its inroads into Samaria. And I think the Lord purposely on this occasion withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit for a time, just as he does in Acts 10 and 11 when the gospel first goes to the Gentiles in Cornelius. And he withholds that for a time, I think for several reasons here. One, so that the apostles would know that these Samaritans had truly been saved and were truly a part of the same church. I think he also does it this way for the Samaritans' sake, so that these people who are used to being seen as half-breeds and lowlifes for their entire life would understand that they received the same Holy Spirit, that they were not second-class citizens in the church or in the kingdom of God. And I think he does it this way for all of our sake, so that we would all know that whether we're Jewish or Samaritan or a Gentile, we're all a part of the same church. We all have been saved by the same Savior, and we all have the same Holy Spirit of God. Sounds an awful lot like what we read from Ephesians 4 earlier in our service. And evidently, when the Samaritan Christians received the gift of the Spirit, there was some outward sign or manifestation of that. We're not told what it was. Maybe it was just like what happened in Acts chapter 2, that they began to speak in other languages that they had never studied before, began to prophesy. But whatever it was, it was impressive to Simon the magician. And he saw it and he said, I've got to have that kind of power. Here's the third characteristic of a spiritual pretender. They think God's blessings can be bought or bartered for. Think God's blessings can be bought or bartered for. Verse 18 and 19 are really the heart of this story. Because Simon sees the apostles lay their hands on his friends in town. He sees them receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he offers them money, literally offers them money, tries to bribe them so that he could have the same power. And then he says in verse 19, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. Basically, Simon saw a magic trick that he didn't know how to do yet. And he offered money to buy it. And he had probably done that before with other magic tricks, right? Seeing somebody do something he didn't know how to do. Hey, man, can I give you 50 bucks? You teach me how to do that? And now he's trying to do that with Peter and John. He's, he's saying, hey, here's a Benjamin. Can you give me this power so that I will also be able to lay my hands on people and they'll receive the Holy Spirit whenever I want them to? And it just reveals that his mind and his heart had not been changed at all. That he still thinks the way the world thinks, that everything has a price, that everything is for sale, as long as the price is right. And that's why it's, it's from this magician named Simon that the word simony has entered into our language. And simony is the practice of buying spiritual blessings or even religious offices for a price. There's been a time in the Catholic Church in the past where you could buy a bishop's position or an archbishop's position or a cardinal's hat for the right price. Or you could pay for indulgences so that your sins would be forgiven or so that the years that a family member spends in purgatory could be lessened. Of course, all of that is hogwash and none of it is taught anywhere in the word of God. It's also a form of simony. And it fails to recognize that some things are not for sale. How, how offensive it must be to God that we would try to buy him off. Of course, there's other ways to do that than trying to buy a position. Some people literally try to buy God off. They'll put something in the offering plate or give something to a ministry. And they'll think, okay, well, now that I've done that, that makes up for the wrong I've done. 
And now God will give me a pass because I made this a gift. We can try to buy God off in other means. We think, well, you know, if I go to church, or if I read my Bible, or if I serve in this ministry, then God will love me. Then God will bless me. Then God will give me whatever power or provision or whatever it is I think that I need. And the reality is, like with any good lie, there's a hint of truth in that. God does want to forgive us. He doesn't want to bless us. He wants to give us his presence. He wants to give us his power. But friends, the price for our forgiveness has already been paid at the cross. And our God does not work off the barter system. What we have from him, we have by sheer grace. God does not want us to try to buy him off. He wants us to come before him broken. And when he changes us and when he fills us with his Holy Spirit, he gives us a heart that wants to do these things. That wants to give, that wants to worship, that wants to serve. Not because we're trying to buy something from God, but because we've already been changed by the free gift of the grace of God. Simon does what he does because he doesn't have a spiritual mindset. Because he's lost and he's still thinking the way a lost person thinks. And in verses 20 to 23, Peter calls him out on that big time. This is the fourth characteristic of a spiritual pretender that I want us to see. Spiritual pretenders may keep up appearances, but inside they know that their hearts are not right with God. Simon tries to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit, and Peter sees right through that. And he says to him the words that are there in verse 20. Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now the J.B. Phillips translation is a little bit more direct on that verse. It says literally, quote, to hell with you and your money. I know that that may sound crass, but that's literally what the Greek says. He, he, is, he is pronouncing a divine curse upon this man. He is saying, may you and your money go to destruction because that's where you belong. And then he tells them why. He says, because you actually thought you could buy the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit of God, who is the third person of the Trinity, the one who hovered over the face of the waters at creation, the one who raised Jesus Christ, God's Son, from the dead, you thought you could give some money and you could buy him. What in the world is wrong with you? That's what he's saying. And then he says in verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. That's the Old Testament way of saying you don't have any inheritance in this. You, you just showed us where your heart really is. Peter's saying, you, you just showed me by what you just tried to do, that you're still as lost as a goose, that your profession of faith meant nothing, that your baptism meant nothing, that you are still lost. And, and he says at the end of verse 22, you've showed us that your heart is not right in the sight of God. The word right there means to be straight. So when he says that his heart is not right, it means that his heart was crooked and, and twisted and he expands on that in verse 22, and he calls him to repent of the wickedness that was in his heart and the intent of his heart. And notice the words there, if, if possible. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't presume on the grace of God, but cast yourself on his mercy, if perhaps he may forgive even this. Verse 23, he says to Simon, I see that you are still trapped in your sin. You still have a root of bitterness and jealousy in your heart that is poisoning everything you are and everything 
that you do. And it's easy to hear all of this, I think, and, and, and to say, well, Peter was right. Boy, Simon, can't believe he did that. Boy, his, his heart was not right. And yet this isn't really about Simon today who lived 2,000 years ago. It's about you and me, isn't it? It's about our heart. We need to ask the question, is my heart right before God right now? If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet given your life to Christ, that's the only way that your heart can be right before him is to turn to Christ completely and fully and receive his grace and forgiveness. If you're here today and you're, in a, you're a Christian, you know, I, I still think it's possible. In fact, I know it's possible because I've been there. To find yourself in a place where you're out of fellowship with God, where your heart is not right before him. Christian, today, is there anything between you and the God who saved you? Is there anything in your life that is not right? And, and we shouldn't lie to ourselves and pretend that God can't see what's going on in our heart or in our life. You know, if we're impressed by Peter's perception here and how he was able to see through Simon, how much more can the God of the universe see through us? Nothing is hidden from his eyes. We also need to remember what God is after. And I want you to hear my heart on this. Why is it that God shines his light on the sin in our life? What is he after? He's not just trying to beat us up. His love and his grace is intended to draw us to repentance. He's shining his light on the sin in our life because he wants to set us free from the captivity of sin. And he wants to bring us into a place of freedom and joy that is only found when we walk in his steps. That's what he's after. People debate about how sincere Simon's response was, but in my view, his response was, was weak sauce. It shows that he really wasn't genuine at all. Look at verse 24 with me. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Here's the final characteristic of spiritual pretenders. I hope you listen carefully. They want to escape sin's consequences without actually repenting of their sin. When I read verse 24, it sounds an awful lot to me like Simon is just afraid. In his view, Peter and John were like these two powerful religious sorcerers that had access to some power that he didn't have, and now they were upset at him, and he didn't feel too good about that. And so he's saying, pray for me, pray to your God for me, that nothing bad is going to happen to me. And now, to be clear, it, it's certainly okay to ask other people to pray for us, the book of James tells us to do that, to ask people to pray for us. But in this instance, you get the impression that he's asking other people to pray for him because he does not believe that he can pray for himself. It reminds me of the way Pharaoh asked Moses to pray for him, that God might take away the plagues. That's what Simon is doing here. Peter, ask God for me to not do anything bad. To me, to take away these consequences from me. But notice what he doesn't do here. What he doesn't do here is actually do what Peter told him that he needed to do. What he doesn't do here is repent of the sin that he had done. And here's the deal we need to understand this nobody else can repent of your sin. 
right? I can't say to somebody, could you repent for me, please? No, there's only one person that can repent of my sin, and that's me. Now, he could have asked them to pray, pray for me that God would break my heart. Pray for me that God would give me a heart of repentance, that I would truly be broken over my sin, that I would really understand what you just said, that I need to come clean before God. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He just said, take away the consequences. And again, sometimes we're the same. Sometimes I think Christians can be so far away from God that if we're honest, we have the same mindset. We pray, oh God, forgive me. Oh God, take away these consequences from me. But really, if we're honest, it, that's what we're upset about is the consequences. I know I've been there before. I've, I've been praying about something, asking God to forgive me, and God has just whispered to my heart, Scott, if you were really sorry about that, you would stop doing it. You wouldn't keep coming day after day and confessing the same thing to me. If you were really serious about that, you would repent of that. Friend, maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. And maybe the prayer this morning is to ask God to take away that kind of phony, pseudo-repentance of Simon and replace it with a genuine brokenness over our sins and that's my prayer that we would get real with God today that we would make sure that we're not where Simon was that we're not spiritual pretenders make sure that our hearts are right before God I'm going to ask you to stand with me and I want us to pray together and after I pray I want to invite you to respond to what God is saying to your heart. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one who sees all. You're the one who knows all. God, you're the one today who can look into every one of our hearts. Father, you know today whether we are lost or whether we are saved. And I pray for any listening today here today who would who would say maybe there's been a time in the past where I've made a decision and I even thought that I was saved but if I'm going to be real if I'm going to be honest I'm not I've never really surrendered my life to the Lord in a genuine way Father, I pray today you draw them to yourself and save them by your grace. Father, I pray for every child of God who's listening right now. I pray for my own heart. Father, would you show us any areas of our life where we are not right with you? Any areas of our life where we're a pretender? Because God, we want to be authentic. We want to be real before you. So, Father, today would you take the knife of your grace and cut away the parts of our heart that need to be cut away. Because, Father, we know that you are a good physician, that you only cut so that you can heal. And that even that is your grace at work in our hearts. God, work in every one of our hearts right now, we ask in Jesus' name.